Welcome to the Practical NLP Podcast with me, Andy Smith. This episode marks a new direction for the podcast. Rather than the tightly scripted explanations of NLP techniques and principles that I've been doing up till now, I'm going to be interviewing people in the NLP field who are doing interesting and exciting stuff. So the episodes are going to be a lot looser and more freeform and also longer than the 10 minutes or so that they've been up till now. And we're lucky that my first guest is a real star. I was doing some training in Malaysia recently, only a couple of time zones away from Australia. So I took advantage of that to interview one of the real stars of Australian NLP, the mighty James Sakalos, who's based in Melbourne. We've known each other on Facebook for years, but this is the first time we've actually talked with each other. Just to introduce James, he's unusual among NLP trainers in that his practitioner courses last a whole 28 days. He's really going in the opposite direction to the commercial pressure on NLP courses to get shorter and shorter. He's also developed some really cool stuff like spiral somatics, which he talks about in the podcast. After the interview, I'll tell you about where you can discover more about the various courses he mentions coming up in the UK, Australia, India, and Dubai. So let's get to the interview. Maybe, uh, maybe you just want to say a little bit about um, what you do in Melbourne, James, and what you do with NLP generally. Sure. Well, uh, what I do in Melbourne is a lot of things, including teaching NLP. I watch a lot of movies. I play pool. Melbourne's just where I live, and it's a fantastic city. I love it here. I couldn't imagine really being anywhere else. And uh, for quite some time now, I've been teaching NLP, and the, predominantly the people that come to learn from me are people who are in business for themselves, uh, small business people, that kind of thing. So unlike a lot of people I know, for example, in the UK, where there's a lot of kind of therapeutic applications of NLP, that's not really my thing. Um, so I uh, predominantly just help people to be able to develop the skills that will allow them to uh, flourish well in business and flourish well in life and enjoy a great quality of life. Right. Okay. That's great. That's not unlike my, uh, my current experience now, which is mostly doing in-house training. Uh, I've stopped doing open courses now. Uh, so more on the business side now than the therapy side. Um, let, let me ask you, how did you get into NLP in the first place? How I got into NLP is that uh, many years ago, I was, well, I've always been interested in human beings and what we're capable of, what people can do. And uh, so I was exploring the edges of that uh, some time ago. I did a lot of meditation and silver mind control, which is kind of like oh. a self-hypnotic thing, old school stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, while I was in Newcastle, there's a Newcastle in Australia as well. All right. And while I was in Newcastle, there were a couple of friends of mine and I exploring the same kinds of things. And uh, uh, after some time, I left Newcastle and tra traveled around, went to different places and revisited. I came back to Newcastle after a couple of years. And one of my friends who was into the same kinds of things had come across NLP. And uh, he was doing his honors in psych, I think, at the time. And had come across this. He'd never done any training, but he'd read some books. And he was really enthused. And he thought that it would be perfect for me and that I would love it. And so he, we had a, went out for coffee one time. And he was raving about this stuff and using all of these jargon words. And I had no idea what the hell he was talking about. And uh, so I did the good friend thing. I nodded and smiled. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he's, I, but it just made no sense to me at all. I had no clue what this stuff was about, except that he thought that it would be perfect for me. And uh, I didn't really think much more of it. But then over the next couple of years, 
I had the same kind of conversation with a couple of other friends of mine who had come across NLP and just went, James, this is, this has got you written all over it. You would love this. You've got to check this stuff out. And, uh, so I bit the bullets and I did. Cool. So what's been one of your best experiences of NLP? Cause, uh, if, if, if you're anything like me checking it out in the early days you would have had some great experiences and uh, maybe some not so good ones uh, in terms of in terms of speakers and so on so what what's what's been your best experience of nlp or one of um i think there's a couple of really good experiences my first best experience of nlp was having the opportunity to learn from my first teacher who became a mentor to me uh, a gentleman by the name of roger dina right and uh, i lucked out basically i i had no idea I, because anyone that is seeking to learn NLP, um, if you've not already done some training, if you've not already been around and experienced the NLP world, you don't really have any kind of point of reference to be able to assess whether a particular trainer is, is good or meh, whether a particular course is a really good course. You've got, you've, you've just got to kind of go with the luck of the draw a little bit. Yeah. And I happened to luck out. I, I, when I decided to do some formal training, I'd uh, made a point of, of seeking out and finding people who'd done some training in NLP, a whole bunch of them. And I polled them. I asked them all, who's the best NLP trainer in Australia? And uh, the answer consistently came back with this one name, uh, a gentleman by the name of Marvin Oka. Uh, and shortly after the response Marvin Oka came the additional uh, part of the response, which was, unfortunately, he just retired. <laughs> and now he's doing corporate training and that's all he does. And however, uh, Marvin had some protégés, uh, one of whom was this guy called Roger Dina. And so uh, I sought out Roger and found myself in one of his trainings. And I'm so glad because he was my, my first teacher and I, I learned a lot from him. And what I didn't learn and I didn't really appreciate for many years afterwards, I knew I was getting good training. I knew it was a really good quality training but I didn't realize for many years afterwards until I myself became a trainer and started teaching and started teaching more or further afield and meeting other trainers and seeing students of other trainers and stuff. I didn't realize for many years that Rog was sensationally skilled. I've trained with like 30 odd people now, yeah. including, you know, all of the, the creators of the field and, uh, you know, various other big name people and stuff like that. And Rog is one of the best trainers that I've ever seen. He's just exquisitely skilled. And I had an opportunity not just to learn from him, but because he was based in Melbourne, uh, where I lived and still do live, uh, I had the opportunity to do an apprenticeship with him. And so I did a five-year full-time apprenticeship wow. with a masterful trainer. And that has, I'm constantly thankful for the facts that I had that opportunity because I get wonderful feedback from people in you know, various trainers and stuff around the world who meet my students and they just go, Oh my God, your students are amazing. Um, and it's, it's just because of the standard that was set by Roger. He had such ex exceptionally high standards yeah. and for me, that was just normal. And I didn't realize for years that that, that was not normal. He, you know, that wasn't <laughs> baseline. He was actually exceptional. And, uh, so that was just, it was a fantastic opportunity. So um, five-year apprenticeship with a trainer who is really, really, really good. Um, so, so quite a contrast to somebody's, because uh, it is possible for somebody to do like a, 
practitioner course and then the master practitioner course the next month and then trainers training the uh, the month after that and set themselves up as uh, NLP trainers straight away. Indeed, which is how probably most trainers out there have done it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I had a year in between each one of those uh, and uh, in some ways it wasn't enough, but uh, five-year apprenticeship, well. Wow. Uh, so, um, uh, next question on my list, and we'll see how this goes, because uh, I think the conversation could develop in all sorts of directions. What do you wish you'd known when you were starting out with NLP? Well, there's a couple of things that I wish that I'd known. One of the things I wish I'd known, and this gets back to, again, the, you know, the fact that people seeking to learn NLP um, haven't yet experienced the broader NLP community. and mm don't yet know and i think this would be a valuable thing to have known about uh, the fact that there's all of these different schools of nlp there's all of these different approaches to nlp that nlp is not the same and i think one of the things that is uh is a tricky issue in this field is that there are a million people offering courses that are all called nlp practitioner or nlp master practitioner and to an uh you know, an, an inexperienced, a new uh, student seeking to kind of find one of these courses. Um, you could look at the facts that all of these courses have the same name and think, well, that's the same course. And it's not, it's totally not. There's all of these different trainings that are completely different in terms of their, their focus, the, uh, you know, the way that they approach things, the style, the, the duration, the intensity, the, they're, they're completely different, but they all have the same name. And so, that would have been a really useful thing to know, and particularly about the, the different schools and the different styles of NLP. Because when I did my my initial training with Roger, um, prior to then going and training with a whole bunch of other people, um, all I knew was the stuff that Roger taught. And Roger was a trainer who was a master trainer of the International NLP Trainers Association, NLPTA, which is one of the many bodies of NLP trainers that are out there. And NLPTA has a particular curriculum, and that's the stuff that I learned. And I didn't uh, realize until I started training with other people that there was a whole bunch of other stuff out there. And when I, in particular, when I came across New Code NLP, it was a revelation. It's, I'd never heard of this stuff before. I'd never come across it before. And it was just extraordinary. And had I known of the, the different schools of NLP and whatnot, I probably would have broadened my horizons earlier than I did. Right. Uh, but the other thing that I wish I'd known when I was starting out with NLP, and this is going to be a huge plug for Jonathan Altfeld, by the way. <laughs> no, no complaints there. <laughs> is uh, knowledge engineering, KE. Yeah. Uh, so you've, you've trained in knowledge engineering, and uh, uh, I know this. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've done two or three, or I've reviewed the same course two or three times. It's evolved each time I've done it, but um, yeah, certainly. And uh, I'm, I, I took to that like a duck to water because A, my interest in NLP in the first place was, was really about modeling. It was about f being able to explore and reproduce the extraordinary things that people can do. And so modeling's always been my passion. Yeah. And uh, also, I, as a kid, I was really into computers and computer programming and stuff like that. So I'm familiar with that kind of way of thinking. So, because knowledge engineering, Jonathan Otfeld's knowledge engineering is a, it's an approach to uh, modeling belief systems and decision systems and stuff like that, that is drawn from the field of artificial intelligence. And what I found, because I teach this now, Jonathan's uh, very kindly, uh, I, I asked him if I could teach this stuff in my master practitioner trainings. 
and uh, he agreed that I was I pretty much had this stuff down pat and uh, yeah. so as far as I'm aware um, I teach it fairly regularly he teaches it fairly regularly I don't know if anybody else teaches it or teaches it particularly regularly um, um, yeah I used to I, I again I uh, asked permission of him I used to teach what I called knowledge engineering light uh, yeah. LIT in my master practitioners when I used to run those um, which was like a very much kind of surface or slim down version um but all the time really emphasizing that if they want the the real thing they'd have to go to him but at least they got uh, some of the basics yeah and the the thing about that is that when you get really fluent with ke it's just it's gold it's like the mm. stuff that you can get in such a short time frame is magnificent and had i known that so i did you know as i mentioned i did this big long extensive apprenticeship with roger and had i been trained in an been trained in ke had i been familiar with ke and fluent with ke uh, at the time of doing that apprenticeship uh, i would have been able to do that in a much shorter period of time right and i would have been able to uh, to get an awful lot more of roger's expertise in a very very short time frame and uh, i i cannot speak highly enough of ke when people do my master practitioner training um, there's a number of topics that we teach, and uh, one of them is KE, and one of them is spiral somatics, which is some uh, work of mine that's an extension of some of the stuff that Roger was uh, was a bit of a pioneer in. And years afterwards, I follow up with people years afterwards, and consistently, uh, people cite KE and spiral somatics as the two most valuable things that they've ever learned. And uh, I, I, it's just it's sensational. I wish I'd known KE. Mm-hmm. Just started. I think K is just invaluable. Mm. Hi, Jonathan. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, um, so Jonathan Otfeld, uh, future interviewee, I think, for this podcast, definitely. Um, can we talk a little bit, actually, as you've mentioned, spiral somatics? Uh, mm-hmm. Can we talk a little bit about it? Uh, um, am I right in thinking this is? at least something to do with uh, Claire Graves' work, sometimes known as spiral dynamics, or is it something else altogether? Uh, yes and no. Okay. Uh, yes, it's something to do with that in the sense that um, there are certain worldviews uh, that Claire Graves um, outlines, I guess, uh, in that particular model and that, that Chris Cohen and Don Beck outlined in spiral dynamics. Yeah. Um, and spiral somatics is predominantly about physiology and it's predominantly about how people embody things because the mind and body are connected. They're just part of the same system. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's about basically how to recognize at a glance, the moment that you see someone, the moment someone walks into a room, where they're at, basically, the, kind of, uh, you know, the, the kinds of things they're likely to consider to be common sense, the kinds of things that they're likely to hold as important in life and in business and stuff like that, the kinds of things that they're likely to have an aptitude for, the kinds of things that are going to turn them on, turn them off, all that kind of stuff, simply by seeing uh, certain patterns in physiology. And by becoming aware of that and becoming uh, particularly aware of the way in which you hold your own body and developing some flexibility in that, uh, you can use your own body as a way of being able to get into and congruently access a whole bunch of different ways of doing the world. So uh, in a nutshell, that's spiral somatics. It's predominantly about the embodiment of these different ways of doing things, but the 
the the way that we've we've basically punctuated different ways of doing the world is something that I've drawn from uh, the biodynamics model. Uh, just those individual worldviews. The model as a whole is something that I think is really cool when it comes to large scale stuff, when it comes to um, culture and nations and large organizations and stuff like that. But I don't play in that space. I play with individuals. And with individuals, um, I personally think that there's some, some places where spiral dynamics as a model kind of falls down. Mm-hmm. And so I don't teach it. Uh, I teach the, the embodied stuff. And uh, it's very much individually based. Right. Okay. And uh, yeah, I can see all kinds of uh, possible applications for that, certainly in um, coaching and in sales for a, for a start off and probably all sorts of other arenas as well. Yeah. Um, okay. So you've, you've talked a little bit um, around the next question on my list, which is who do you really admire in NLP? And you've mentioned a couple of people. Um, so I'll ask, what are you really excited about in NLP right now? Well, <laughs> what I'm excited about in NLP right now is the fact that it seems to be disintegrating. Um, <laughs> I think as a field, it's because NLP is a completely unregulated field. Uh, it's in certain senses, it's become a little bit of a mess over the years. Yeah. And, uh, to the point where now, you know, you can do a, a literally a two day course somewhere that has the title NLP practitioner. Um, or you can do, it's like I do a 28 day NLP practitioner program, for example, yep. and there's no distinction in the field between these, you know, and this, it's become a little bit of a mess, but what's seems to have emerged in the last few years is that there are people, some of the people in the fields that are fairly innovative, that are developing new and interesting things. Um, rather than just incorporating those things into an NLP training, they're taking something, they're taking a new development or a new process and really kind of fleshing it out and really um, putting a lot of time and energy and effort into it and kind of developing it into its own kind of standalone thing. And so you've got lots of interesting things that have been emerging in recent years uh, as a result of either modeling projects or people developing uh, different processes. So you've got things like Andy Austin's uh, metaphors of movements. Um, you've got core transformation, which, I mean, you could teach core transformation as a process yeah. in an practitioner course and teach it in a couple of hours, or you could go and do a core transformations training and spend a few days just on this, you know, yeah. um, Marvin Oka and Grant Susalu have developed this stuff called M-braining, mm-hmm. uh, about using your multiple brains, your head brain, your heart brain, and your gut brain, and getting them all aligned and whatnot. And rather than them just uh, teaching that as a, as a process, as a technique inside of an NLP training, they've really kind of put a lot into that and expanded it out, and they're offering that as a standalone uh, piece, a standalone field, as it were. And there's a lot of that that's kind of emerging uh, out of NLP at the moment. And I think that's a really good thing because I think the... Um, I think it encourages innovation. And I also think that by doing that, you're giving these things space to breathe. You know, if, if I were, for example, to teach uh, core transformation as a technique or as a process or something inside an NLP course, it'd just be one of many things yeah. that we spend hours on. But if, you know, someone goes to, uh, you know, to go and train with Tamara Andreas and they spend like a few days, then they're going to get more than just, uh, a really kind of quick and fast, um, just to 
say the same thing twice there. Um, they're going to get more than, um, than uh, just kind of a surface level introduction to something. They're going to go into depth and they're going, and I think one of the things that's been missing from NLP for some time now, and uh, it's the kind of thing that I emphasize quite a lot in, in my trainings is taking something and really going into depth with it and really developing a lot of skill with it and a lot of uh, intuition with it and a lot of awareness of the, the different ways that it can be varied and the different variables and, and all of this kind of stuff. And I think when people take uh, a particular process or a new idea and they flesh that out and they develop that into a standalone piece, instead of just teaching it as a technique somewhere, it gives it the space to really, really go into depth with those things. And so I think that's this movement in recent years that's kind of sprung out of the NLP community of people developing things and then uh, kind of developing them as standalone pieces simultaneously is, is fostering a lot of innovation, but it's also within those spaces uh, creating a lot richer representation of those things and a lot, to, um, a lot more depth of exploration of those particular things. So I love that. Marvin and Grant are doing the embraining and I love that Andy's doing metaphors of movements and I love all of this stuff. I love that Penny and James, Penny Tompkins and James Lawley um, having modeled to David Grove rather than just teaching symbolic modeling or clean language as, you know, a little piece inside of an NLP course are, have developed this into a standalone discipline. Yeah. It's a whole, it's a whole thing in itself. Um, I, I'm, I haven't gone into it in depth, but I guess you don't actually need to be an NLP practitioner to have to get into studying that. Not at all. And that's the same with a bunch of these other things as well. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, so you think the, uh, think the NLP practitioner as a qualification has ultimately will wither away? I have no idea. I've <laughs> guessing now, you know, because yeah. Because new practitioner courses continue to spring up and they get shorter and shorter and shorter and there's five day pracs and three days pracs and two day pracs. Or entirely online. Or entirely online. Yeah. yeah. And uh, oh goodness. I gotta there's someone here in Melbourne who was looking into uh, doing some training with Roger uh, once upon a time. And had booked into was talking to Roger and was talking to a couple of other trainers and had booked into a three day NLP practitioner program oh. and had sold on the idea that it's, well, it's an NLP practitioner program. It's exactly the same. And, uh, and didn't have any way of distinguishing between different offerings that were out there. Yeah. And, uh, so, uh, Roger said, well, look, I tell you what, you booked into this course. That's cool. Um, it might be valuable to get multiple descriptions though. And I just happen to do like, I'm doing a one day introduction to NLP, uh, next week, which is before she was going to do this practitioner program. And so she did a one day introduction to NLP with Rog. And then she went off to do the three day NLP practitioner program. And the various people on the program thought that she was one of the trainers because <laughs> she advanced NLP skills after doing a one day introduction. Right. And, uh, so she went, you know, I, I think I'm going to go, you know, do some <laughs> stuff here. And, uh, but I think in recent years, there's been a little bit of a turnaround because for, for quite some time, there was this huge explosion of these the short courses that just got shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. And about five years ago, I think in Australia, there was uh, myself and the Collingwoods, Chris and Jules, yep. 
who were running uh, long form comprehensive trainings and everybody else, all of the other, you know, 70 plus, I think uh, people offering NLP trainings were offering these short courses. And just in the last couple of years, that's, it's turning around a little bit. So I've got, um, uh, a couple of students of mine that are out and they're running trainings now and they're doing long form trainings. A colleague of mine who's been out of the game for a number of years has just kind of come back and is doing long form trainings. There's a guy called Daniel Smith, I think, um, who's running uh, Chris and Jules's course in Brisbane. Um, there's uh, Mark Clarsen's come over from New Zealand. New Zealand seems to have um, been a, a, a home of, of comprehensive training for some time. And uh, Mark's recently moved to us. And so all of a sudden, the number of people running long-form comprehensive trainings in the last couple of years has just kind of exploded, hmm. which leads me to wonder if maybe there's uh, things are kind of flipping back the other way. Maybe. So I, I have no idea what's going to happen. I don't know if, you know, if, if NLP practitioner as a, as a qualification is going to disappear into nothingness or well, it's, I have no clue. Absolutely. No clue. But I think it's good that people are, uh, taking new stuff and developing that into separate pieces because uh, I think that's really valuable. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree. Um, I, I remember uh, when I did my trainer training um, in California and we were all revising for the exam, um, which we could be asked about anything whatsoever for like live demonstrations and so on. Uh, we got to sleight of mouth and nobody could remember what it was or what it was for or how would you use that? And we looked it up in the manual and okay, so, so yeah, you say this and what's the point of it? Uh, and yet you get somebody like uh, Doug O'Brien running two day, three day courses just in that. Uh, so that these, these things can be very much skipped over or shoehorned into a practitioner or a master practitioner training and sort of don't really touch the sides as they go through the person's mind and out the other side sometimes. Yeah. Hmm. Um, so I, I'm wondering if, uh, cause I, we, we have a lot of, uh, listeners who this is like their first experience of NLP. Um, hmm. I wonder if you have, uh, anything up your sleeve that you, that they might be able to try out some little technique or intervention or favorite little exercise or thought experiment that they uh, they could try out sure well um, one little thing that's that's quite handy for lots of different situations is uh, a process that I describe as the trousers of time uh, <laughs> a a reference to uh, a line from a Terry Pratchett novel, um, which I think is Lords and Ladies is the novel, um, in which the, uh, the metaphor is that uh, the future hasn't happened yet. And so depending on your decisions, you may find yourself down one trousers a leg of the trousers of time, or you may find yourself down a different trouser leg of the trousers of time. And so uh, myself <laughs> and we should, my should we Should we add for... Um non uh, non brit and non australian listeners uh, like in america would uh, this would be like the pants of time presumably <laughs> <laughs> so that would be something quite different in the uk of course well yeah you don't want to be calling it pants in the uk no but um, <laughs> because it's definitely not pants it's quite cool and uh, so the trousers of time as a process uh, it's basically a way of 
if you've got a dilemma, if you've got a decision coming up or you've got something where you're faced with a couple of different options and you're not entirely sure which way to go or which way that you want to go um, and you're just not quite clear, you're not yet congruent uh, about this, then this is quite a cool little process and uh, basically involves the best way to do it. Uh, is to do it in such a way that you really get your body involved. And so what I would suggest is to uh, begin by uh, marking out uh, on a floor somewhere, let's say, a, uh, a timeline, right? So um, nominate a particular section of floor and nominate a particular spot as being the spot that indicates the beginning of this lifetime uh, and another spot that indicates now. Um, if, uh, if you happen to believe in multiple lives and stuff, then just stick with a single lifetime. Uh, I don't, by the way. I, I did in my previous life, but not this time around. Mm -hmm. um, but just marking out a, uh, a spot for now, a spot for the beginning of this lifetime, and notice that if you were to connect the dots between those spots, you would have a line. And you can represent your life history as that line. And uh, having done that, uh, the next thing to do, because... Having done that, you've, you've got like a visual metaphor. You've got something that you can look at and you can see and imagine your life history as a line on the floor. And the next thing is you want to get that into your body. You want to translate this and turn this from being a visual metaphor into an embodied metaphor, a physical metaphor. And uh, so literally physically stepping into the spot that you've nominated it now, the next thing to do is just to walk very gradually and very slowly back towards the spot that you've nominated at the beginning of this lifetime and just get a feel for the different ages, the different times, the different years. So you can get a feel for that passage of time. And you can do the same thing from birth up to now, if you like as well, just to kind of get it into your body so that this metaphor of this timeline is not something that's just a visual metaphor, but it's something that you have a physical representation of. Uh, after having done that, the next thing is this, whatever dilemma you have, whatever decision you have, whatever choice you have to make, uh, there's going to come a point in time where one way or another, you will need to have decided. It's your decision moment, as it were. And that might be a couple of weeks from now, or it might be a month from now, it might be tomorrow. So whatever point in time that is, that's the last point at which one way or another you need to decide. Uh, just mark that out in the future. If your line from the past goes from one point to another, then going further, you can mark a point in the future, which is that point where one way or another, you've got to make a decision. Uh, and from there, we're going to set up the trousers of time because however many major options you have, in many cases, it's only going to be either two or three. I either do this or I do that. And I'm not sure which way to go. Or you might have a couple of, of uh, other potential options there. But the next thing is to think about with any decision that you make, there comes a point where after having made that decision, after having made that choice, enough time has passed for you to look back and recognize with hindsight whether or not it was a good choice. And it depends on the kind of decision. If, for example, uh, you know, I'm deciding what to have for lunch, then 20 minutes after that, I'm going to know whether that was a good move or not. If I'm deciding to move to another country or not, then that might not be you know, maybe a few years would need to pass before I could recognize whether that was a good point. But for whatever decision, there's going to become, there's going to come some kind of point in time where enough time has passed for you to look back and recognize whether that was a good choice or not. And I would describe that as a hindsight point, a time where you've got enough time to have some hindsight. 
Now, whatever that particular point in time is for this decision, and it might be six months down the track, it might be a year down the track, it might be a couple of months, whatever that point in time is, for however many options you have, we're going to have multiple possible futures that will be marked out. We're gonna mark out a points on future A. So if I take choice A, and six months from now, I'll be able to look back and recognize whether that was a good move, then I'm gonna mark out another points on the floor somewhere in the future in my timeline metaphor. That's six months in the future down one possible future. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna do the same thing for the other possible parts, right? So if I could alternatively go down path B, then I'm going to mark a point on the floor somewhere that's gonna represent six months into the future or whatever that hindsight point happens to be down another possible future, future possible B. Uh, and for however many other paths you happen to have. Having done that, so the next thing to do is this, starting from now, physically standing in now, make the following adjustment. When you're about to step in, to a future, step into the points at that decision point in the future, step into it at that decision point. And as I understand you're gonna be doing some notes for this, by the way, because as verbal instructions, there's gonna be a lot to this. So yeah. we could do a diet. Um, but from now, step into that decision point as if you are committing 100% to option A, and then walk down that, however long that particular period of time might be, however long that future happens to be, six months or a year or a couple of years, whatever it might be, and just walk down that possible future, walk down future A until you get to the points where you've got enough time to look back and recognize whether that was a good move or not. Having done that, you then step off that space, shake it off, come back to now, we're gonna repeat the same process for future B, for option B. So the next thing is to step into that decision point as if you're committing 100% to option B and then walk down that future, that B future, to that point in the future where you've got enough time to look back in hindsight, et cetera. Having done this, what you'll generally discover, what you'll almost always discover is that one of these options clearly feels like the superior options, clearly feels like in your body, like I'm much more confident. This is a much better option. I feel much more congruent with this particular option. However, what we're going to be tracking for, what we're going to be paying attention to is not so much which one seems better, but what we're after is finding an option that's perfect. So whichever option is better, the next thing to do is to ask yourself the question, okay, is that just better than the other option or is it perfect? And if it's not perfect yet, then the next thing to do is this. If there's some part of you that recognizes that it's not quite perfect, then there's some part of you that recognizes what's missing from it, what else needs to be there, how you would need to modify it so that it would be much more suitable. So the next thing then is to kind of check in with the back of your mind. How might I need to modify this so that it's more suitable now? And then make that modification so that you now have version two of that path, of the better path. And then repeat the same process. From now, stand into that decision point, walk that modified path, 
And again, continue to just kind of rinse and repeat that basically mm -hmm. until you get to the point where it's perfect now. You'll know when it's perfect because there's a world of difference between I'm 99% sure and I'm 100% sure. You'll know the difference. Uh, if any part of you is going, yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty good. It's, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's not 100%, but it's pretty close. Then that's not good enough. Right. You just go back and go, okay, if it's pretty close, it can still be better, right? So if some part of me recognizes that that's 99% and that there's 1% that's not quite right, well, that part of me that recognizes that knows what it is that needs to be there, what adjustment needs to be made. And uh, I will generally do this unconsciously, but for people who like to approach things with a very kind of conscious mind thing, there are some options. So you might, for example, take that particular path, but change the timeframes, or you might need to learn something first or you might need to get somebody else involved in this particular path, or you might need to uh, divert off that path to some other path and then come back to it. Or you, but there's any number of adjustments that you might make. Uh, and, but just continue to rinse and repeat until such time as you get, yep, this is perfect. And what you'll find is the more that you do it, the easier it becomes. And you eventually get to the point where all you need to do is just think about you know, I've got a decision coming up. I've got a couple of different ways to go and you can just check in with yourself and you'll recognize straight away. Okay. This is the way that I need to go. And this is how I need to modify it. So that's the trousers of time. I've never attempted simply to describe that before. Usually I'll just do a demonstration. So this is a little bit odd. Yep. So hopefully with a, a diagram and some instructions, this is something that you'll be able to, if you're listening to this, practice this uh, for yourself and notice the difference that it makes. It's a really, really useful way of being able to get really clear on what you want and also to really kind of get in touch with and recognize when you're completely congruent, completely 100% behind something versus when you're not quite there. Because that difference between being 99% behind a particular decision or a particular goal or a particular path and getting to 100% is all the difference in the world. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was following that. Uh, that was pretty clear actually from the description, uh, as you say, uh, we'll, we'll put something in the show notes, a diagram or something, or ideally, uh, you can put that up on your own blog or website and we'll just point to it and that way people can uh, find you more easily as well. Sure. Um, okay. So, uh, you, um, you mentioned a name at the beginning of that description of uh, a guy who uh, I've heard you talk about in relation to NLP before, uh, Terry Pratchett. Yes. So um, do you want to say something about the relevance of some of Terry Pratchett's books to NLP? Absolutely. Uh, Terry Pratchett, uh, may he rest wherever he happens to be across the black sands of the domains of death. Um, was an extraordinary writer uh, and he was someone who all of his books are hilariously funny and also deeply insightful into the nature of human beings and human relationships and that kind of thing and so um, a lot of his books deal with different kinds of people and the way that people do things and the different kind of motivations that people might have and how to go about um, talking to people and uh, getting people to change the way that they think about things or bring out the best in people, this kind of thing. So um, a lot of his, his books are fantastically educational in terms of just dealing with human beings. And I particularly recommend uh, 
a certain series of books involving a trio of witches, uh, those witches being uh, Granny Weatherwax, Nanny Og, and Magrat. And the, uh, there's a series of books that I recommend, starting with a book called Witches Abroad. It's not actually the first of the Pratchett books that involves witches, um, but I think it's the first that really, where those characters have really kind of come out and developed quite nicely. Uh, so there's a book called Witches Abroad, followed by Lords and Ladies, followed by Masquerade, followed by Carpe Jugulum, uh, which are all books that follow the, you know, the journeys of these three witches. And the two senior witches in particular, Granny Weatherwax and Nanny Og, both to me exemplify some of the, the best qualities of a good practitioner of NLP. Mm. Uh, so Granny Og is, has a mind like a steel trap, is very uh, insightful, is very uh, outcome focused, uh, is very, you know, get the job done kind of thing. Uh, and Nanny Og, on the other hand, is extremely personable, gets on brilliantly with people, is great at getting information out of people. She can meet someone and within moments knows their life history and all the names of all of the people in their family. And uh, for me personally, I think the, the ultimate Nelper is a, a, a perfect combination of both of those two witches, Granny Weatherwax and Nanny Og. And so every now and then, I don't generally recommend that people learn NLP by reading because mm. um, it's a full body sport. You kind of need to do this stuff. You know, it's a yeah. little bit like, learn martial arts by reading um but uh now and then people will ask me you know what are there textbooks are there things that i should read on the course and i'll say yes and these are the books which is abroad lords and ladies masquerade and papa yuka by terry pratchett and, um, uh, seriousness and people take notes and it's great and they are really 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 good and valuable for people learning these kinds of skills um yeah i i would definitely agree with that um, in Pratchett's world, you've kind of got two kinds of magic practitioners. One is the wizards who are, uh, uh, a lot of book learning, long involved spells, uh, robes and thunder flashes and stuff. And the witches are much more kind of low key. And very often if they can do something without involving formal magic at all, uh, just using a bit of, uh, psychology or something, then they will do it that way. And, and they get a lot of their uh, successes and meeting the overcoming their greatest challenges by knowing what they want, by uh, remaining true to themselves, by having clarity in their decisions and so on. So yeah, I, I definitely back up that recommendation. Um, and, and also, uh, also the one about the the ones about the junior witch, um, Tiffany Aching oh, as well, yeah. starting with the We Free Men. They're, they're pretty good for that as well, I think. Absolutely. And there's some really explicit stuff in the Tiffany Aching books in terms of, not in terms of like dodgy explicit, but <laughs> some, uh, you know, ex explicit, basically instructions on how to do some really valuable things. Yeah. There's some, some kind of how to stuff for the people reading the books that's built into those books. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, so big recommendation from both of us there, I think. Probably a good time to ask, what are you doing with NLP at the moment? What have you got coming up? And also, where can our listeners find you? Well, what I'm doing at the moment is I'm about to start an NLP practitioner program here in Melbourne on literally in, in four days, um, which I'll be running through to the end of the year. And uh, in December, I'm running a storytelling training, three days on how to tell captivating stories. Wow. And uh, which I've had so many requests for that over the years, I've just decided, oh, fine, I'll do it, you know. <laughs> 
Mm. And uh, then uh, in the new year, I'll be doing more NLP practitioner trainings here. I'll be teaching spiral somatics in Melbourne and in uh, Mumbai, I think, and in Dubai and in London. Um, and probably running some trainings for trainers as well, not just NLP trainers, but trainers generally. Because yeah. that's training is something that I'm passionate about. Uh, in addition to NLP, just training generally, helping people to develop develop skills and learn and develop their capabilities. Uh, I'm a big fan. And uh, where people can find me is on my website at www.nlpmelbourne. That's m e l b o u r n e nlpmelbourne.com.au. Uh, or you can find me uh, on Facebook at facebook.com front slash NLP Melbourne. Uh, I think that's pretty much the only place. I'm not really on other social media. I don't do Twitter or Instagram or any of that stuff. Um, just Facebook and my website. That should be enough. Yeah. Excellent. Well, uh, thank you very much, James, for, for being my first interviewee on here. I think we've got some cracking material uh, that uh, is really going to help people. So yeah, thanks, thanks very much. And um, everyone listening, see you next time. Thank you. So there we have it. Lots to think about for the listener and lots for me to learn from my first interview. To find out about James's spiral somatics training in the UK in July 2017, you can contact the sponsor, James Tripp at jamestripp with two p's.co.uk. To find out about training in either NLP or Spiral Somatics with Mr. Zakalos in India or in Dubai in April, you can contact Mohammed Rafi at nlptrainingworld.com. And to get full information about James's courses and coaching in Australia, go to nlpmelbourne.com.au. Finally, there will eventually be some written notes and a diagram for that trousers of time process that will appear on the podcast blog at nlppod.com. But I think James's description is clear enough that you could really get your head around the process by listening carefully to what he's saying and writing down the steps yourself. That's it for this week's podcast. See you next time. Bye.